And I think I've told you before that I have ADD, what's uh, known as attention deficit disorder. Um, it's not something I was diagnosed with as a child because they didn't have it when I was a child. They didn't recognize it when I was a child, but you could always tell in class the other kids that struggled with ADD because on our progress reports and our report cards under conduct, there were always low grades and it always said had difficulty in class paying attention or uh, could not stay focused on their grades. And we didn't have medicine to treat our ADD. We had uh, our teachers carried a big wooden paddle they called the Board of Education uh, or some type of creative discipline or really for me it was the fear of my dad's belt that kept my ADD under control. Um, but eventually when I was in my 40s I went to a doctor and talked to him about getting diagnosed and, and understanding how I function with this ADD and we were talking about medicine and, and I tried some of it but he warned me that the problem with trying medicine is that over 40 years I had adapted and customized my life to accommodate my ADD. And so there were things that I did in my life to be able to overcome ADD that wouldn't work once I tried the medicine. You see, probably one of my greatest struggles, the way it manifests itself the greatest in my life is I struggle trying to stay focused on one thing at a time. Being able to focus on just uh, watching television or just reading a book, I can't do that. I, when I watch television, I have to have something to read at the same time. Uh, I can't read without television on so that I can have both of them. When I, when I don't have a book and I'm trying to watch television, I get distracted. I, the show doesn't hold anything for me. And what I found was uh, so they would mention something. They would mention a place or they would mention a person or even an actor would come on and I would recognize them. Well, instead of watching the show, I was more focused on where I saw that actor in another play or another show or another presentation or that I didn't know about the place they were talking about. And so one of the ways I accommodate that, like reading and watching, is I've learned to pause the television. And while I pause, I will look up who that is or I will look up what that places and I'll read all that I can and that allows me to be able to focus because I've accommodated it. Many of you that have come to the church office may notice that the office door is closed. Now uh, that's not to keep you out, that's to keep me in because part of my ADD is I wander around and if the office door is open or my door is open I can't focus on what I'm doing because I'm focusing on everything else that's going on out there and still to even with the door closed about every hour and a half I have to get up and I just kind of wander around the church and if you've come and seen me wander around or I go into the CDC and play with the kids because that's more my speed and so uh, that helps me accommodate and when it comes to my messages, one of the things that I've learned to do is, is to follow my notes. I, I don't need my notes to understand what I want to say. I have a photographic memory which allows me to pretty much share what I've studied and prepared, but my notes are like guidelines, guide rails. They keep me from chasing rabbits, as my teacher used to say, or going down some kind of uh, hole when I come to a topic that I really love. And it's that part of me that I think is drawn to the writings of Paul in the New Testament, to Paul's letters. Because Paul, if you've ever read one of his letters all the way through, like we did when we studied Ephesians or Galatians, uh, he has spiritual ADD. 
Paul will be talking about a subject. He will be uh, fine-tuned and focused on a subject. And all of a sudden, he will break off into a separate thought, which makes you think that he's lost his train. But what happens to Paul is he gets so caught up, so wrapped up into what he's talking about, that he has to stop his teaching or his writing and talk about that. It's, it's as if he's talking about grace or mercy or the unconditional love of God or the power of God inside of us. And as he's talking about that and thinking about that, it so overwhelms him that he breaks out into this extra teaching that you may have heard me say sometimes when I'll stop and say, okay, this isn't my sermon, this is free stuff. That's what Paul does, and, and we call them doxologies. He, he will break into these little songs or these little thoughts where he finds something and he drills down on it. And we find several examples of that in the book that we're studying, 1 Corinthians, including the passage that we're going to talk about this morning. Paul, last week, if you were here with us last week, Paul was talking about the cross, and he was talking about it in relation to the church and problems in the church. He was directly confronting the the way that the church allows personalities and preferences to get in the way of God's mission and God's message. What happens is we allow the things that we want, how we want them, when we want them, and who we want to have a say to sidetrack us and derail us into division, into conflict, into fights in the church. And it keeps us from being who God's called us to be. And in the context of talking about that, Paul begins to say that the church, when it's healthy, is united by the cross. As I mentioned a moment ago, it is the cross that takes us from all types of backgrounds and all types of, uh, of upbringing, all types of jobs, colors and races and, and even belief system. And through the cross, that diversity becomes power because that diversity, those different views and thoughts and backgrounds all of a sudden become empowered because of the unity that's found at the cross. It's been said that the ground at the cross is level. That there is no spiritual hierarchy. All of us are the same when we come to the cross. And when we leave the cross, we are united with one goal, with one heart, and with one mind. The problem comes when you and I begin to put our own self in the way of that united heart and mind. Now, as Paul is talking about that, and he... he, gets to this place in verse 17 and 18 and 19 of chapter 1 where he begins to drill down on this idea of the cross. He's going to pick back up in chapter 3, if you're reading ahead, what it means, these divisions in the church. He labeled four different groups that were causing problems at the church at Corinth. He's going to pick that back up. But here at the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, he goes in a different direction. He lets that idea of the unity of the cross springboard him into talking about the divisiveness of the cross. That that same cross that unites us can bring division to a world around us. And he's going to begin to explain how that plays out through philosophies and different viewpoints. But as he explains that, it all comes back to the cross. Because you see, inside the church... The cross brings unity. But outside of the church, the cross brings division. That's just the nature of the cross. That's just uh, uh, what it is in and of itself is divisive. 
to those who are living our culture, who live in our society, the cross can be divisive or offensive, or even as he claims here in verse 18, foolishness. Why is that? Why is the same cross that gives us the power to be united that can be so divisive? Well, that's what he tries to explain here in this passage. And this morning, I wanted us just to focus. He goes in to talk about philosophies that divide. But I wanted us to focus just on really verse 18 and the cross. Because I fear and I worry that within the church today, you and I have allowed our familiarity with the cross. We sing about it. We see it everywhere. We wear it as as jewelry to desensitize us to the true meaning of the cross. We talk about it so much that it loses some of its power. We sing, we just sang five songs that all related centrally to the cross. And as we sing those songs, so many of those words get lost on us because we've sang them so many times. When we talk about the old rugged cross, and and it's a song that we've probably sung all of our lives you lose sight of exactly what the writer is talking about. The power of the blood that flows down from that precious old cross because of our familiarity. And so this week I want to focus on this idea, this principle of how the cross can be divisive and what we are supposed to do with that. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, 18, 19. Really, we're just going to stay on 18. 17 is kind of a transition between last week and this week. And 19, he begins to take this idea of a divisive cross, a cross that divides us, and explain why it divides according to the philosophies of the world. And we'll get into that next week. But this morning, I wanted us just to really drill down on verse 18. So let's read. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What Paul is saying here, and that's where we ended last week, is he's saying, I didn't come to baptize, I didn't come to to disciple, I didn't come to do all of those things that people put so much weight on. Those are important, he said, but my goal, my mission is to preach the gospel. And that's the mission of the church. When we get subdivided and begin to focus on so many other things that aren't central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are no longer the church. And what Paul is saying is the power of the cross is not found in wise words or great illustrations. No one was ever saved because a preacher told a funny story or because a preacher gave a great illustration or because we use wise or eloquent and flowing language. That doesn't bring life-changing conviction and repentance. The only thing that can do that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And according to what Paul is saying, what I want to suggest to you today is the reason we are falling behind reaching our generations for Christ is because we no longer talk about the cross in the church. We've decided that the cross is is too offensive. We've decided that the cross is, is, is too dangerous. People are turned away thinking about the cross. So we've pushed it to the side. And without it being central, there is no life change. He says, I didn't come with wise words. Only the power of the cross. He says, if I could explain it to you, if I can help you understand it, then the power of the cross loses its effectiveness. Then listen to what he says in verse 18. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he quotes Isaiah 29, 14. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Now let me break down a couple of things for you here in verse 18 to help you come to grips with how divisive, how divided the cross can be. He says there that the message of the cross, and that word message is the same word that we have for Jesus in John chapter 1. It's logos. It means the word, the central theme, and in the context of it being used here, logos means more than just the cross. It means the whole theme of the cross. Everything that the cross represents All of God's redemptive story, all of of God's plan is wrapped up in the message of the cross. You understand that without the cross, there is no salvation. Without the cross, there is no redemption. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. And so he is saying that the message of the cross, and when he says message, he's not just talking about this piece of wood or an act that Jesus did. He is talking about everything that went into that from the foundations of the world. When God designed a plan to bring redemption to mankind, that is all wrapped up in the message of the cross. Grace and mercy and unconditional love and forgiveness. That's all wrapped up in the message of the cross. He said this message of the cross, the words of the cross, is foolishness. Now that word foolishness comes from the Greek word moriah, which is where we get our word moron. And in the context here, it simply means that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. So what Paul is saying is to those that that have this message of the cross, they believe it is foolishness. It doesn't make sense. And when you think about it, there was a time when you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and it didn't make sense to you. You might not have called it foolishness, but in your heart you considered it foolishness. How can we experience grace, unmerited favor? That's foolishness. How can there be unconditional love? That's foolishness according to man's standards. Who is it that thinks it's foolish? He says, to those who are perishing. Now this is one of those times where the English doesn't capture all that the Greek language has to offer. Really, the literal interpretation of to those who are perishing is to those who are separated from God for eternity. We would say to those who are lost, to those who do not know God, who are divided from God. And so if you were looking for Rusty's paraphrase or a literal translation, what Paul says here in verse 18 is God's plan for the salvation of man that was culminated in the cross makes no human sense to those who are self-centered in their wisdom and their worldview and are separated from God for eternity. Now, if you think about it, compared to all the other world religions, Christianity doesn't make sense. In all the other world religions, you are asked to sacrifice for God. You are asked to die for God. In Christianity, God, through the person of Jesus Christ, dies for you. That doesn't make sense. 
In all other world religions, the way that you become right with God, the way that you have a relationship with God is through your behavior and your effort and all that you can do. But in Christianity, it's not based on what you can do. It's based on what Jesus Christ did, and it's offered to you freely. That doesn't make sense. I've had people that I was witnessing to and that I was sharing the gospel with say, that that doesn't comprehend, I can't understand. You mean that God sent His only Son to die on a cross for me so that I might be saved, so that my meaningless life can now have purpose, so that my sins can be forgiven and I can be pardoned, so that I can now have a relationship with God for eternity and all that I have to do is trust Him and accept Him. That doesn't make sense. Because you and I have been told in this world that there is nothing for free. Everything must be earned. Everything must be paid for. Even those terms, grace and mercy and unconditional love. You mean that God loves you in spite of anything that you do? That God loves you no matter how you behave? Unconditional love. For the message, the meaning of the cross doesn't make sense to those who are separated from God. But then look what he says. But to us who are being saved. Now some people get caught up in that idea of being saved as if somehow salvation is is something that's still being worked out. And we learned a couple of weeks ago back in chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 that when you accept Jesus Christ, your salvation is secure from now until eternity. It's not secure in your hands, it's secure in His hands. And it said, He is faithful till the end. What He's talking about here is the active nature of salvation. When I accepted Jesus Christ, I was saved. Today, I am being saved. Everything about me is being saved and being redeemed. And one day, I will still become saved. You see, I'm in the process that God started at the cross, and it is not ended, it is not fulfilled until when? When I stand before God face to face and give an account for my life, and the blood of Jesus redeems me at that point in God's physical presence. I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. He is saying, basically here, to those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is what? The cross is the power of God. The power of God. Didn't say a power of God. Doesn't say some power of God. He said the cross is the power of God. Now the word there for power means something that is accomplished. The means by which things are accomplished. What is the means by which God accomplishes all of His purposes? The cross of Jesus Christ. It's more than just Jesus hanging on a tree. It's more than just the blood and the pageantry that we celebrate. The cross is the culmination of every plan that God ever had. And everything that happened at the cross resonates from that moment to today through eternity. He said the cross is the power of everything. The cross is where God accomplishes His purposes. There is a miracle that takes place at the cross. So many times we forget. We, we live in a time where we don't like to talk about miracles. Maybe God doesn't do miracles. God does miracles 
every moment of the day. And you know what the greatest miracle is? Most of you in here experienced it. Salvation. It's taking that dead and bringing it back to life. Because of the cross, when you accepted Jesus Christ, He took you who had no worth and made you worth something. He redeemed you. That's the greatest miracle of all. And the way that miracle works is through the cross. We can never lose sight that it's at the cross and what Jesus sacrificed there that is central and foundational to everything we believe and hold dear. Please understand, without the cross, there's no salvation. Without the cross, there's no forgiveness of sin. Without the cross, there's no redemption. There's no relationship to God. Now sadly, many people today try to diminish and push aside, even religious groups, this idea of the cross because it is offensive to people. Because it it makes people uncomfortable so they don't talk about it and they don't mention it. There are even those that that want to focus only on the ethical teachings of Jesus. They say, well, we're we're not going to focus on all of that blood and, and, and redemption stuff. We're just going to focus on the teachings of Jesus and follow Him as a good ethical teacher. But the problem with that is without the cross, you can't do the things that He calls us to do in His ethical teaching. It's just lesson plans without the cross. Because it is what happens at the cross where my life is changed that I now have the ability to do what He calls us to do in His ethical teachings. You can't have Christianity without the cross. Anything without the cross will always lead to a joyless, legalistic religion based on changing philosophies and moral standards. You see, really and ultimately what Paul is reminding you and I today is that when we stand before the cross, it divides everyone between those who will experience eternal life and those who will be separated from God forever. By its very nature, it divides. And for you and I this morning, for all of creation, there are only one of two choices when confronted with the cross. As we relate to the cross, there are only one of two places that you can go. There's no middle ground. There is no indifference. Either it is foolishness or it is the power of God. You either rely on your faith or you rely on your own understanding. Because you understand it's faith that takes foolishness and turns it into the power of God. Because at one point, probably all of us considered Christianity foolishness. What changed? You placed your faith in God's Word and in God's actions. And that turned foolishness into power. Now I understand. I'm not naive. I understand that it's easy for us to label the things that we can't understand, the things that we can't comprehend, to label those things as foolishness. We've probably all done it before, right? I remember when the internet came out, we were trying to explain to my grandfather how the internet worked and how stuff could travel through the air. And I I can't imagine trying to explain it in the cloud and all that kind of stuff. And his words were, that's foolishness. 
Imagine a hundred years ago when they tried to, to explain to people in the rural areas that we've developed a way that man can travel from one place to another through the air and it involves you climbing in to a very heavy piece of metal and that metal will break the laws of gravity and take you there. I imagine many of them said, that's foolishness. Because when we don't comprehend something, when we can't understand something, it's easy for us to see it as foolishness. But the problem comes when we think of something as foolish and other people begin to place their beliefs in that thing. Other people begin to live according to that thing. And then all of a sudden what was foolish becomes offensive. Because you see, it becomes offensive to those who think it's foolishness for you to place your faith in something they consider foolish. How else can we explain why someone who says they don't believe in God can fight so hard to demean and mock and belittle someone who says they do? Because somewhere in their life, they have allowed that foolishness to turn to offense. And the Bible tells us it's the very cross itself that's offensive to a lost and dying world. How else can we see people so upset when people live out their faith on a daily basis? Those who say they don't believe in God, they don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe in faith, yet they get up in arms when somebody who says they do tries to practice what they believe. We see it all around us today. All you got to do is turn on the TV and recent Senate confirmation hearings. There were people being nominated to be judges who came from a Christian faith and they were, they were basically ridiculed and mocked and asked, you really believe that stuff that you say you believe? Even though I find it offensive? Why did they find it offensive? If they didn't believe. If you don't believe in something, why do you care so much that other people do? It's the cross. It's the cross. Because the cross that saves is also the cross that condemns. You see, the cross that unites is also the cross that divides. The cross of Jesus Christ doesn't just save us from our sins. It confronts and reveals the sins of the world. And people don't like to be confronted and have their sins revealed. It's the cross itself, that sacrifice that Jesus gave that confronts people's lifestyles and people's belief systems and people's worldviews. It's that selfless act, that, that very selfless act of sacrifice that Jesus did on the cross that confronts a selfish and, and self-driven me generation that is looking for love everywhere else and walking away empty. You see, the cross will always confront. Even the power of God in your life and my life is affected by how we respond to the cross. Every day. The power that we experience in our life is directly related to your understanding and you're allowing the cross to be a reality. So the question for us this morning is what does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? Not 20 years ago when you got on your knees and gave your life. What does it mean to you this morning? What does it mean to you today? All four of the Gospels cover Jesus' response when he's asked, what do I have to do to follow you? 
But I love Luke's response in Luke chapter 14 because he puts it in the negative response. He said in Luke 14, 27, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Matthew's is a little more succinct. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, my favorite verse that I quote quite often, for I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Later in this same passage of text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 2, Paul says, For I am resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What does the cross mean to those who claim to be believers? It means come and die. Now you understand that those who Jesus was teaching to, those who Paul's writing to, they knew what the cross represented. The cross didn't mean a symbol on a wall. The cross didn't mean a a bracelet or a necklace or a ring. The cross represented the most ugly and brutal way that the Roman world put somebody to death. Matter of fact, almost everyone who is probably reading this letter from the very first time they got it had publicly witnessed someone being crucified. Historians estimate that between the time of Jesus' death to the time of this letter, about 25 years, that over 20,000 Jews and Christians had been crucified by the Roman Empire. There were times that you couldn't walk down one of the main thoroughfares and you didn't come across someone on a cross dying of crucifixion. And it wasn't a couple of hours of end. It took days. So as you walk to school with your kids, there's somebody dying on the cross. When you came home that day, walking them home, there is somebody still dying on that cross. The next day when you took them, that same person is still on that cross fighting for their life. You see, when Jesus says, take up your cross, they knew it meant shame and suffering. Because when Jesus himself experienced that shame and suffering, he made it also a place of sacrifice. When he became the substitution for your sin and mine and freely offered his life. And that made that same ugly wooden tree a place of salvation. Matter of fact, it's the only place of salvation. The Bible says there is no other salvation but through the cross. There is no other name by which man might be saved but through Jesus Christ. Yet even today, even in churches this morning, there are still those who would call it foolishness. Still those who would call it offensive. What about you? Have you ever moved from a place of foolishness to a place of power? Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting That on that plane of suffering and shame, there is salvation. That your sins can be forgiven. That you can be redeemed. That your life can now have a purpose. Have you ever placed your faith in a loving, graceful, merciful God? If not, don't leave this place without experiencing the power of the cross that changes everything. If you're a Christian this morning, a follower of Jesus Christ... Our response is very clear. The message, the example of Jesus Christ and the cross calls us to come and die. Die to our old self, die to our sin, die to our selfish nature.
See, the cross doesn't call you and I to come and do better. It calls you and I to come and be deader. You and I are dying to self. Why? So that Jesus might live through us. I remember a story, it's probably apocryphal, which means it probably didn't happen exactly the way it does, but it gets passed around. That Robert Schuller, when he was building the Crystal Cathedral in California, and if you've seen pictures of that place, it's an elaborate and beautiful, majestic place of worship. But as they were building it, and it was getting completed, he was taking a group of evangelists and a group of preachers and prominent pastors on a tour And as he was going through the cathedral and pointing out different attributes, the glass and the stained glass and the chandelier, he was mentioning how much each thing cost. How much each thing uh, cost them to be able to put it in. And, And to make a point, he pointed out to the cross that was on the back of their property on a hill, this huge lit cross. And he said, even that cross cost $75,000. One of the evangelists in the back said, well, that's a shame. There was a time when Christians used to get them for free. The cross demands a response. Paul tells us there's only two responses that we can make. It's either foolishness or it's the power of God. And if it's the power of God, why Aren't we experiencing it on a daily basis? It goes back to how you view the cross. Let's pray.